You're listening to Blind Entrepreneurship, an interview series podcast that highlights the stories of the top business professionals around the world. In each episode, we explore how entrepreneurs overcame blindness in business in order to execute their vision. This podcast is brought to you by Penji. I'm your host, Jonathan Grisbaski, and today we have Rachel Benyola on the show. Rachel is the Chief Executive Officer and founder of Annie London. Rachel is a passionate, gritty leader who invented a foldable bike and skateboard helmet that is completely customizable while meeting safety standards. As a former graduate student of both clinical psychology and business innovation, Rachel utilized her deep sense of the human psyche to understand the behaviors and attitudes surrounding outdoor exercise and exploration. Today, we are primarily talking about her new product, Kova, which is now being sold available online at mykova.com. The reason why I wanted to interview Rachel is because Rachel's company is incredibly unique and unlike anything else that has ever been on blind entrepreneurship. It's solving a real problem and is on the forefront in technology in the commuter cycling industry. It's a great company that has great values, all led by a great person. As we progress as a society, we need to explore the safety of cycling, motor and electric scooters, and other forms of travel. These sustainable means of travel are the future of our society, and we all need to invest in these at at least some point in time in our lives in these primitive ways of technology. Another reason why I wanted to interview Rachel is that her products are all made in the U.S., and it's something that she is incredibly passionate about, and you can hear why she's so passionate about this uh, about in the middle of the podcast. Some other highlights, brief highlights of the episode are when we talked about equality and inclusion and what that means to Rachel, and also Rachel's views on the future of travel. Today's episode is sponsored by Penji. Are you in charge of marketing for your business and need graphic design support? Let Penji design anything you need for your business, from a logo to your marketing materials, sales sheets, social media content, and so much more. Penji helps you achieve more with unlimited graphic design support, daily output, and a dedicated project manager, all at one flat monthly rate. We have an exclusive offer to the blind entrepreneur community. Head over to penji.co and use the coupon code BLIND for 15% off your first month. Again, that's penji.co, P-E-N-J-I dot C-O, and use the coupon code BLIND for 15% off your first month of Penji. And now, let's get to today's episode. Hey, Rachel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Absolutely. So before we get into this episode, we have to lay the foundation as to why you're a qualified expert to talk about two topics that we don't really talk too much about on the show, but it's producing a product in the United States and how to sell a product rather than a service. So why are you the most qualified to talk about this? So in terms of U.S. manufacturing, I basically utilized my, my own network and connections that have very heavy roots within the U.S. manufacturing industry, specifically in plastics. And plastic is a big component of our product, the Kova. So I really leaned on the expertise of, of those around me that have been in the industry for 30 years, um, as well as I really taught myself, you know, as I was in business school at Drexel getting my MBA, 
Um, I was talking to manufacturers all over the country trying to get anybody to work with me. And I think in having a lot of doors slammed in my face and manufacturers not wanting to work with me because I was too small, um, I, I learned a lot about what was necessary to really manufacture this product from the ground up. Um, I think like the benefit of making a product that's so different is that you have to start from scratch. So I pretty much used my own ignorance to the process to, to methodically build a manufacturing process step-by-step locally right around me in Philadelphia. Very cool. Well, your story discusses about how you made cycling a part of your life, even at from at least the information and the research that I found at a pretty young age, what originally got you into cycling? So interesting what got me into cycling was that I had kind of a rough upbringing and biking was really my own personal escape. Um, I thought (laughs) getting out on a bike after school, as soon as I got my homework done, I would get on my bike and go out with my friends and we'd ride around the neighborhood until sunset. And that was something that really gave me that peace and like just like sense of like independence as a young kid that I, even though I didn't have a car, couldn't drive a car that I could bike around and and be with my friends and be outside. And it was just really a lifesaver in a lot of ways for me mentally, emotionally, and physically. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the, how you came up with your product Kova because you have this passion for cycling at a young age. It's transferred over into your adult life. Now you have a business that surrounds, for the most part, safety and cycling. Tell me about that moment of when you came up with Kova. So this was in 2015, and it was like the planets like perfectly aligned because a lot of a lot of things happened at once that really like this light bulb went over my over my head, and um, at that time, I. I noticed a lot of people were biking in the city because our Indigo Bike Share program had launched that summer. And a lot of people that bike using Indigo don't wear bike helmets. And that was something that I noticed. And it it made me think of my friend Judy that got into a crash when we were kids. And she actually became permanently blind from not wearing a helmet when she fell off her bike. And the doctors had told her, you know, if you're wearing a helmet, it probably would have prevented like Hmm. this permanent blindness. And that's something that stuck with me throughout my life. And when I notice people not wearing their helmets, it like, it really resonates with me. And, um, I, I also at the time had a couple, cause I have Airbnb, like I Airbnb my, um, extra room in my apartment and there were some Airbnb guests staying with me. And they actually were biking a lot in the city. And they had said to me, like, oh, yeah, we traveled here from Europe. And there's no way for us to put a helmet in our um, in our suitcase. So they were asking to borrow one for me. And so I'm, like, sitting there in my living room. And I'm, like, okay, like, a lot of people don't wear helmets. And I started asking friends, like, why? And they were all saying, well, helmets are really big and bulky. Like, you can't put them away anywhere. Um, they're not very attractive this is what I kept hearing. So like all this stuff sort of happened at once. And I was like, what if I made like a better helmet? What if I made a folding helmet? And that's when I started drawing really ugly pictures of different concepts and then started iterating prototypes from there. Very cool. And and you would think that like, I've ridden a bike for years on end and 
um, love writing. Don't do as much as I as I probably want to, but I know the importance of wearing a helmet. Do you feel as if that there's a lot of education that you have to do in order to convince people that they need a helmet? Or is that even not the target demographic that you're trying to go after? I think education is always power. So a big component of the marketing plan that we've been building as a team is educating consumers because um, part of our mission is to reduce the number of injuries, especially to the head and neck where you're most, you know, sensitive to major, you know, lifelong handicap if you're not careful. So um, I think that education is important regardless um, of our target demographic, but it's a matter of how we're, how we're educating them. And I believe that based on what we've studied already, that people really don't understand how much they're putting themselves at risk. And there's definitely this um, psychological um, sort of story that we tell ourselves that nothing bad will happen. And, and, and that's really that mentality does put us at risk by not really realizing our own humanity. And, mm -hmm. and, and so I, the way that I look at it, cause I know helmets and bikes, bike helmets can be very controversial sometimes in the bike helmet world of should, you know, should we make people wear them or not? I say, as long as gravity exists, there's a risk. So yeah. it's really deciding for yourself what you like to do. I just want to educate people and be like, Hey, if you wear a helmet, it's going to, and you do get into a crash, this is how it's going to protect you from blindness and even going into a coma or, you know, so many different things. Somebody I know lost their sense of smell or sight. So, I mean, it's, it's a real issue. And so I think no matter what, we want to continue to get better at fine tuning our education message to people so that they really get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely important. In addition to that, now you have the standpoint of, okay, well, how do you make all this possible? Because you can create an awesome product. You can educate the people, but it also has to look good. People have to want it. And I'm sure there is a ton of, of stuff, so to speak, that you have to go through in order to make this product available for people to buy. So being that you are a producer of a product, can you tell us a little bit about you know, some of the things that maybe we need to look out for when you're producing a product? And if you could even go into the process of your, of the, the patent that you um, have currently, or that, well, your product is currently patent pending. So could you tell us a little bit about the struggles that you've had to overcome um, with, with the whole legality on that side as well? Okay. All right. So all I'll talk about the patent side first. Um, so with, with the patent, I mean, it's really important. A patent is only as good as you're willing to protect it and defend it. Um, so some people, there are certain products that um, if there's real, there's difficult ways to protect your product, I would definitely consult a patent attorney in terms of, you know, is it worth filing a patent? Because I wouldn't just make the assumption that you should have one. Um, sometimes like in certain industries, the way that patents are filed, it's not worth it. But in terms of our product with the way the helmet folds up, there was definitely, according to legal counsel, that we should be filing a utility patent. So I did, it was like, I don't know, two years ago or something. And, um, you know, the process was definitely intense in terms of 
first finding finding an attorney that I felt comfortable with. So I actually ended up finding an attorney who specialized in filing products for helmets in the military. Mm. Um, so there was definitely that overlap. Like, you know, you want to try to find someone who specializes in your type of product. Like don't just hire anybody because some people only focus on like medical, like healthcare, like pharmaceutical. Um, so you want an expertise, that expertise as well as, um, you know, you got to have some money saved up. I would say it's going to cost you anywhere from like five to 15 grand to file. And I would say you could get it done for five, but it might not be an ironclad patent. We invested more in the ironclad version that was on the higher end um, because that's a big part of our intellectual property is the technology that makes the COVA safe. Mm -hmm. So you know, then basically everyone who was ever involved in the design process of that iteration, because like we had old iterations that were totally different, but the one that we have now that you see on the site, every person who was involved in designing that is named as an inventor. Mm. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they own rights to that, but it just means that they should be listed as an inventor. Um, and basically you want to make sure the attorney just helps you have everybody sign that necessary paperwork. Um, and so we already have been granted two of our claims internationally. So we already own certain aspects of the helmet fully outright. Um, it's a couple of the other claims on our patent because you make multiple claims of all the different features like this, like part A through part Z. And you have these diagrams that um, you point out the different features that make your product unique in its utility. And um, basically, I, I filed it. And right away, we got a response that it was looking very strong, like the patent office got back to us, they weren't they weren't like fighting with us, which apparently does happen a lot. So I wouldn't be discouraged if that happens where they might like dispute things that you're claiming. Um, but we were already granted a few of our claims. So that was really exciting. And we we're just waiting to hear back on the rest, which does take sometimes a couple of years, sometimes I heard five to seven years, which is like crazy, but I guess they're so backed up at the patent office. It's not extremely efficient, an efficient system. So you have to technically like go into the market and market your product. And as long as you're patent pending, you are still protected um, while you're waiting to hear those results. Um, and so I, I highly suggest like having a good attorney that specializes. I feel like that's like the biggest thing you can do because they're going to tell you what you need to do. And um, like, yeah. So, I mean, do you think that you need uh, like, do you think pe most people can do this without getting funding? And I mean, not to be like too financially question mm. is, were you able to secure funding or is this something that you're self funding and one day hoping to get funding? I, I mean, at least at that point, I totally used like my savings. Like yeah. I just was like, you know, this is, and I wanted it done well. I'd rather pay more money for something of quality. And so that's why I went and found someone who was an expert in my field of patent and had, and said like, let's do this. And, um, you know, I'm glad that we made that investment or that I made that investment in the business. How much but do you think they saved you though? How do you, how much do I think it saved me? Yeah. Um, like, because, because like if you were to say do this on your own or if you were to not have the right lawyer, you had to have gone through so many hoops and ladders. 
I'm just curious to see like how much you think that you've saved by investing in yourself, investing in um, mm. the the information and the and the education behind what it is that you're doing. Because I'm sure you could have lost millions um, if not been not even been able yes. to launch the product if it wasn't for the right the right connections. Exactly, I totally agree, hundred percent. Yeah, that's why um, you always have to have a good lawyer. <laughs> that's yeah. definitely a big piece of advice I would give, like on multiple fronts. Nice. Um, and then also, you know, there's not just the utility patent, which is harder to get, but it's more um, enforceable in a court of law, but also a design patent, which is the aesthetic and the look of a product. So we're actually in the process of filing that um, as well. So that's, that's a little bit different than the utility, but um, I think if you file a design patent, it supports the utility patent and bolstering it. Mm -hmm. um, so... I would suggest talking to counsel to file on both. Now your background in particular is business innovation and for the most part, general psychology. There's no engineering behind any of this at all. I'm nope. sure you needed to, to work with or collaborate with some type of engineer. What was that process like? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people that are thinking to themselves or have thought to themselves, holy crap, uh, I have this idea, it could save lives or it could do this, it could do that, but I don't know how to do it. And you're kind of like that person that doesn't necessarily care that you don't know how to do it and you find a way. So kudos to you for that. But could you just talk a little bit about your process and how you were able to do this without necessarily having a background and expertise that a large majority of people would probably say you need to have in order to do this? I think about stories like the Wright brothers. The guys didn't even, from what I've read, they didn't even know how to read and they invented the first plane. You know, they were the first to take flight. You know, they were these two dudes from the middle of nowhere in the Midwest and they did it. And I read about Sarah Blakely who started Spanx. I mean, she was selling fax machines and working at Disney World when she launched, um, you know, she invented this like pantyhose that's now a billion dollar company. And I read stories like that all the time that, you know, we only limit ourselves as much as we want. And just like the story of the four minute mile, nobody had ever beat that record of a four minute mile because everybody said it couldn't be done until one person did. And then all of a sudden, all these people were breaking that record. And so in my mind, you know, we limit ourselves. And, and I just know that I've, I'm educated. You know, I was going to be a doctor. I was in a clinical psychology program to be a doctor. And I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm not like, an idiot to be frank. So I'm like, okay, I think I can figure this out. And I just told myself, how hard can it be? And so I started drawing pictures. And from there, um, I started studying material science. I, I brought some interns on that were engineered, that had engineering backgrounds and they were studying it. And I literally had them teach me things. I taught myself and did a lot of research. And I thought to myself, look, this isn't brain surgery. It's not rocket science. It's a helmet. Yes, it is like a complicated technology, but it is something that I believe I can, I can do. And um, I just told myself that. And there were many times that, you know, we hit massive brick walls where we had no idea how we were going to manufacture this certain piece or how we could make it work or make it be flexible while still very durable. And so it's literally trial and error. And I would suggest to all entrepreneurs, it's literally just don't give up, just keep trying. Like if you have that vision and you keep, and you know how to draw people in that are experts, you know, I constantly was talking to product designers, 
and engineers. And, um, you know, some of them had their own ideas that maybe I didn't agree with. So I'm like, okay, I will find someone who's on the same page. And, and on the team now, we have an engineer who actually built aircrafts and automobiles for Boeing and Lockheed Martin for many years. And so having him on the team really helps us make sure that we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's. But I will say that this design of the Kova largely came from literally sketches on a piece of paper and then just iterating over and over again to what you see on the website today. Um, I, I believe that there are just people out there that if you surround yourself with can help you figure things out. I don't think it's, it's like realistic to think that you yourself should know all the answers to everything. Everyone mm -hmm. is always going to need help in some area. And Absolutely. for me, and for me, it was engineering. So, um, <laughs> but I used my talents and my strengths to my advantage to get to this point. Yeah, that's great. Kudos for you. I, I want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit because talking to somebody like yourself, um, we have a good foundation of how you, you know, got here, um, but now you need to sell the product once you're able to actually make it. So could you give us some advice uh, as to, or maybe some steps that you could, that we could all take, that if we're selling a product, what are some things that we need to do in order to sell the actual product and get it in front of to the mass market like you've been able to do? Because you're kind of doing it a very unconventional way. You're not necessarily going to, you're going directly to consumer. You're, you're not necessarily going into the, these department stores that I'd say a large majority of people might be doing. So like, why do you use that approach? How does it benefit you? And what can you teach other people to sell their product if they have one? So my, my answer is very practical in that we have our manufacturing set up locally and it's, and it is scalable, but right now we're, we're smaller, you know, we're not making 50,000 helmets a month. We, we hope to get there very soon, but for now we're manufacturing much smaller numbers. And when you talk to retailers, like major retailers, they want you to have a lot of inventory on hand. So if you just look at it very practically from a logistical standpoint, startups aren't necessarily equipped unless the menu, the retailer wholesaler is willing to really work with you, which some are, but they do take a lot of your margin where you're left with very little in terms of revenue and revenue is already slim when you're first starting out. So it's a decision that a CEO has to balance out and make, which is never easy. I mean, it never is. So I know nobody wants to be the CEO sometimes, right? Because mm -hmm. you make all the hard decisions, but it's balancing out where do you want to be? And the truth is like, it doesn't mean that we don't ever need to be in a retail store like down the road, but for a while, it, it just makes the most sense logistically to launch and scale up the, in a way that feels comfortable to us as a, as a company. Um, and we're able to speak directly to our consumers and build a brand without having to okay it through a corporate bureau bureaucratic structure, like a big retailer. Um, it's just, there's more ownership in terms of going direct to consumer. It's harder because you have to educate the customer yourself and really push all that content yourself. Um, but the truth is you got to start somewhere. And we decided to start here because it just makes the most, the most um, financial sense for us in terms mm -hmm. of the long-term strategy. And um, 
I'm not saying that it's necessarily easy, but it's pros and cons. And it depends on what kind of product you have. Totally. So, so yeah, but you know, where we feel good about being about selling through online sources, but I wouldn't be surprised if sooner than later, we are going to end up in some kind of retail, retail um, partnership. Well, that's awesome. And, and I'm looking forward to be able to hear that in the future. Um, but so now we have this widget, right? We have this thing. In this situation, it's the, it's the helmet. It's the Kova helmet. How are we, how did you get this product in front of people in a way where you are entertaining the idea of putting it in, re, in major retailers? Um, what are some steps that helped you get the notoriety that you, that you have now today? Um, well, it, when I first started out, I mean, if anybody, you know, was listening from like the Philly startup community or whatever, I was at a lot of the startup events. I didn't really know anybody when I came to Philly and just started showing up and telling people, Hey, I have this idea. Like literally I showed up with that and I, I, started recruiting people that were like, oh, that's really cool. I want to help, or that's really interesting. I like to bike. Let's talk more. I can help you in this way or that way. And I started building that community around me of support, not only locally, but all across the country. And so from there, I more or less started showing prototypes that I was making, like out of, they started out as paper. And it's literally, I had student interns helping me make these paper prototypes and it was literally asking customers hey what do you like about this what do you not like about it and comparing it to other helmets on the market and literally just listening to our customers if you really want to know how to sell to customers here's a piece of advice go out and talk to them literally a lot of companies don't necessarily do that they like make a lot of assumptions about what their customer is going to want and what their customer is going to need but I used my strengths of observing people and paying attention to see that even though someone said X, they actually behaved in Y way and, and understanding the customer's motivations and drivers of how they act when it comes to biking and safety. And so I had these conversations with different cyclists and you know, skateboarders at biking, biking events, at conferences and conventions, all over the country. I was at events in Austin, at South by Southwest. I was out at Interbike in Vegas, um, went to some conventions in DC. So, I mean, you got to get out there and talk to your customer and just really let them tear your ideas apart and shoot a lot of holes in them. Because if they don't, if they don't like what you're selling, you're, you're already out of business. You know what I mean? So for me, it was, I want to know what are the three main things that customers want in a helmet. I figured out what those were and one by one I've hit those over, I've hit those in terms of the design over the last three years. The, this, this, obviously the foldability, the style of it, how it looks and the safety, making sure that I hit on those three major points has been my goal this whole time. And, um, it all started with me talking to my customer. That's so great. that's, that's a big piece of advice. Like I know it sounds so simplistic, but like people get really nervous showing their idea because it's like a little, it's a precious jewel that you have inside of you. And you're like, Oh, I don't, I don't, you know, you don't want anyone to judge it, but you have to let people judge it and rip it apart for it to get better. 
Now, do you, how long do you think it took you in order to make that, that mark? Um, because I think a lot of people, I mean, you, you are a very specific type of individual where, and I can sense by the way that you're answering these questions that you have this like never say die attitude, which is incredibly inspiring, but most people may not have that, that mindset. So is there um, a time frame, a time period where you started seeing results versus you just going in and people destroying your, your idea, so to speak, because if you give everybody a, a, an opportunity to speak their mind, they're always going to shoot it down nine times out of 10, but they may not necessarily buy from you. So was, could you talk a little bit about the moment of when you started seeing growth within the company uh, rather than calling this a business versus a hobby? Sure. Um, so I would say that, you know, ironically, I was like, wait, I was like bracing myself that people were going to rip me apart. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing was, I very rarely actually heard people say like bad things. It was more, it was more that they, I think, couldn't, didn't believe that it was possible for me to make that, make a folding helmet. They're like, yeah, but how is it, how is it still going to be safe? Like, how is that going to work? And I think there was a lot of doubt and people kind of thought I was a little nuts and I had to really be comfortable with people being that way with me but they still love the concept. They're like, it's really amazing. It's a great concept. I like where you're going with it. I just don't know how feasible it is. So I knew that I needed to actually make it real. And that's why I was very hyper-focused on building prototype after prototype and making each one look better and function better so that people could see, oh, this is actually like real. It's not just like an idea on a piece of paper. Like it's actually real. I think that's the difference between physical products and like non-physical is that like, you really have to have something in front of you to show someone. And that's a challenge when you're trying to make a whole new product, but you just have to literally understand that it's going to take step by step. And I got a piece of advice from an entrepreneur I heard speak at an event where basically if you're not slightly embarrassed by your product, you've, you've waited too long to show it to people. Mm -hmm. So like me, I'll be honest, a lot of the events I went to early on, I thought my product looked terrible and I was really embarrassed by it. But I'm like, look, I need to like get it out there to hear what people think. And um, hearing people actually say, this is a great idea. It encouraged me to know that I was on the right track and people were giving me their email addresses and saying, let me know when you launch. I want to pre-order. So like, you have to look at it both ways of like people are going to, there are going to be these people that are going to like tear it down or tell you it's not possible, but there's also going to be this, this sense of like encouragement that people are going to be like, that's really cool. Um, And you have to try to take in both sides because if you just take in the negative, you're going to get burnout really quickly. I know I did at certain points. Um, And you also can't just take in the positive and be optimistic and then create a product that like isn't based in reality. So Um, it's a balance between hearing both sides. Yeah. So what was the other part of the question you asked me? Um, it doesn't matter at this point. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, After, after doing some research, I found that, uh, just going through your, your Twitter feed for a brief moment, you can sense how passionate you are about equality and inclusion in, in, in particular. And so I was just curious to ask this question. Um, what do those words mean to you? Inclusion and um, equality. equality, equality and inclusion. Well, 
Um, on a, I mean, on a personal level, it really means giving people a fair chance to show what they're made of um, and really letting everyone have a voice. I think like being heard is, is really important and having people in positions of leadership that actually hear that and do something about it, which means you need leaders in place that some look like you and are and understand your experience, which is why I'm really thrilled that there's so many women that have been elected into the house this past, like, you know, midterm election. And um, I am very passionate about it. And that's why, you know, that's why I'm, I'm very big on our helmet being made in the USA because I know people are being paid like a fair amount of money. When I know like in, when you outsource your product to other countries, you kind of don't know, you're not there. And, and so like for me, I want to walk the walk. I'm not just like saying, hey, we all need to be equal and be treated fairly, but also like in my business that there's, that the people that are working for us are being you know, treated fairly and like know that they're valued and important. Like I know everybody by name that makes every part of this helmet. Um, and it feels really good to have those relationships with them and let them feel valued. So um, it's a very personal thing that I've always felt like I've, I've been, I was a therapist for recovering drug addicts and homeless people in Philadelphia. And so I've worked with for many years, even before that in the nonprofit world, mentoring at risk um, teenagers, that a lot of people are marginalized. And if we just keep ignoring those populations and their needs, it only creates more disparity among the classes and more, um, just honestly, more burden for our economy overall. Like yeah. instead, let's educate young people let's provide more psychological services and psychological help for those in need that are struggling with mental illness to mobilize them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like for me, uh, someone who my background is in psychology, it, it, just even being in the field has like changed my life to open up my mind to things, to know that there's more that is possible to even think like, Oh, I can create a folding helmet. Who cares that I'm not an engineer? Like I'll figure it out and I'll find people that will help me figure it out. Um, that definitely comes from a, a place of believing that I'm just as worthy as somebody else. Yeah. Um, That's great. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful answer. Thank you so much for being transparent and honest. Um, you know, I, I do have one final question before we end the conversation. Uh, something that is incredibly important to me in this utopian society that I believe in at some point in time where we, we have a very, it's very easy and accessible to travel no matter where we want in the world, whether it's, I hope one day we can, I can go to a hyper, hyperloop by bike and then drop off in, in Philadelphia and zip on over to California in the next uh, two hours or so and still have my bike with me. It's, it's a dream that I would love to be able to, to fulfill one day and hopefully wear a helmet from, from your company along the process. So, but I'm curious though, what do you believe is the future of, of travel in our world? Hmm. No, it's a great question. Um, I think people like 
Elon Musk from Tesla, and all these companies that I know are out there working to make really cool technology, like flying cars and the Hyperloop, and even just like making transportation more sustainable and accessible, such as the scooters and skateboarding is still a big thing that people use a lot, and biking is growing with all the bike share programs. I mean, I think that, you know, it, I see the future being less reliant on vehicles as like, or when I say vehicles, I mean cars as being like the number one way that we're traveling. We're opening up people's minds to other worlds. And the truth is our culture in America is very individualistic. And, and what better than visualizing a guy from America smoking a Marlboro cigarette, you know, driving down the highway in the Midwest in his like really cool car like it's very american when you think of it but the truth is the face of america is different it's changed and it actually is in my opinion it's a, a young woman or a young man maybe not caucasian from another country that's biking um and it's just the face of america is more diverse and travel is only the way that we travel is going to reflect that um whether I think older generations want to accept that or not. The truth is that the the face of America is is a melting pot and we can't really fight that. And I, I don't think we should. I think we should embrace it. And that's why um, I believe that I'm really excited that when I see bike share programs launching and I see so much diversity of people biking around, it it really lets me know that people are understanding that the way that we've been living and functioning in our society is slightly broken and that creating a better way to go from point A to B that actually is healthy, gets you outside and it's not as um, harmful or risky to the environment. I mean, it's a more holistic approach that in every decision we make as human beings, we are affecting things around us. And I see that different forms of transportation can actually help promote us having a better footprint or influence on the world around us. So I could talk about it for a while, but like, <laughs> you get what I'm saying? No, totally. I do. It's a great, it's a great answer. And, I, and again, so appreciative of the transparency and the honesty that you're, um, that you're, you're laying down for us. And we really, really appreciate it. Um, Rachel, I'd like to just say, Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it was an absolute honor hearing your perspective. Uh, love just the energy that you have and your, your mindset on life. Can you tell everybody a little bit more about how they can find more about you, how they could potentially buy your products, uh, and learn more about all the other things that you have going on in the future? Yes, absolutely. Um, I can be found on, um, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn under Rachel Bignola. If you want to connect with me, I'm happy to, you know, provide some support to any entrepreneurs out there. We need to like be there for each other, especially for some female minority entrepreneurs. We sometimes feel a little lonely, but we're, we're all out there and you're not alone and it's really hard and it sucks, but you got to keep going. Um, but I can be found at mycova.com. And also the Kova has a store at mycova.com where you can look at all the different fabric interchangeable covers that go on top of the Kova. And you can also pick out different colored chin straps to match with your Kova cover. So it's, um, it's all there and pre-orders are live now. 
and you know you'll be reading about us in some other news outlets as well like Forbes and so thank you for your support and and please get out there and ride get outside and take care of yourselves because it's because life is a bumpy road absolutely i feel like that's like the motto of life right yes <laughs> very cool all right so again all the all the links will be in the show notes for you guys to check out uh and if you were and if you did want to pre-order you can go ahead and just either uh, go to tveshow.com or just go into the show notes and the link will be right there you can tap on it with your finger uh and you're good to go uh, but again rachel thank you so much for your time we really appreciate it You've been listening to Blind Entrepreneurship, brought to you by Penji. Our guest this week was Rachel Benyola. All right, listeners, I'm sending a worldwide challenge to those that are listening. This week, I'd like you to go out of your comfort zone and do something you know you need to do, but have been making excuses as to why you haven't done it yet. And when you do that one thing, tweet me at J or head over to tbeshow.com and drop a comment on this week's episode. You can find more about Rachel and her company at mycova.com. And as for me, you can check out Penji at penji.co if you need on-demand graphic design support for your business and head over to our podcast website, which is tbeshow.com. The podcast is on all major podcast networks like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and so much more so you can download it on your favorite network no matter where you are in the world. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the absolute world to me to tell a friend. Share it all over the interwebs. It's the only way that we can cure blindness in business. Go out there and execute your vision, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. Today's podcast highlight isn't actually a podcast at all. Instead, it's a book highlight. I'd like to give a huge shout out to my little brother. No matter how old he is, he will always be a little brother. But he is the author of Mr. All Around, The Life of Tom Gola. Uh, a book that was just released most recently in Amazon, and you can check it out directly in the show notes below. But to give you a quick background of the book itself, it's about a man named Tom Gola, who is a Philadelphia Big Five basketball icon. He led LaSalle to the NIT Championship in 1952 and the NCAA Championship in 1954. He holds the NCAA record for most rebounds in a career. Gola also helped the Philadelphia Warriors win the NBA the NBA championship as a rookie in 1956 and was named an all-star five times before retiring in 1966. But Goal also had an amazing achievements as a coach. His LaSalle Explorer teams were a large part of the national basketball landscape. He was also inducted he was also inducted into the, the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 1976. Again, it's available in all major book locations, Barnes & Noble, and especially Amazon as well. So check it out in the show notes if you're interested. Again, congratulations, David. We're all really proud of you.